Hello, comic creatives. Welcome back to the Comics Connection podcast. I'm still Gamal. He's still Andy. And we are still talking about the business and creative side of running a comic book business. Uh, Andy, how are you doing? I heard you got some good news on the uh, crowdfunding front a couple days ago. That's right. Uh, our Midnight Tiger hardcover campaign by Ray Anthony Height uh, is at this point funded, and we are well on our way to some really cool stretch goals. So if you're interested in an awesome book uh, and awesome stretch goals, now be your time to search out Midnight Tiger or very good, uh, very good. And how many how many days was the campaign running before you actually hit your goal? Uh, I think five. Uh, that sounds right. Yeah, five. I think we hit it on the fifth day. Um, and we've got we've got a lot of backers. Uh, we've got the hundred and forty, maybe more. Um, for our, for our first campaign. I mean, really quick, yeah, we've got just about 150 backers right now, so I'm very pleased with it. Not just the, the, the dollar amount, the book's amazing, mm -hmm. um, I've read it, awesome, but um, but just the amount of support we're seeing from the number of backers there. So it, it's really great, and and Kickstarter, I think just today, I think that it's coming on, on X or Tweet Suite or whatever, there's one social media sites about it, and so okay so now you said this is your first campaign so as a publisher who's been you know you've been your own publisher for a few years now do you see yourself using kickstarter more to get more books out or is this kind of a unique situation for you as a publisher yeah i mean crowdfunding was always a part of the plan it was you know when we, when we launched cex we had sort of there was with our limited amount of resources, there were about three of us that started the, the company and we all do other things. So none of us was able to devote the time. So we knew we could we would only be able to do a certain things well at launch. And we really focused on um, infrastructure and production just to make sure that when files came in, we could handle them, we could, we could move them through, and then we were set up with all the right partners for distribution and all that sort of thing. And of course, we had an accountant so people could get paid on time and in bulk, um, including, including royalties, which is a funny thing, but I have to say that to creators like, hey, you'll get paid on time and in full. And that shouldn't be a selling point. That should just be standard, but economics. Uh, but yeah, so we, so part of the plan though was we would expand out into some retailer customization. That retailer exclusive coverage for a specific shop uh, um, that we were expanding to crowdfunding um, and uh, yeah, a few other things. And so as we've been growing and as we've been building that infrastructure and it works smoothly, we then had to move on from the plan. So crowdfunding was always part of that plan. Um, and now we're here. We're doing it. And it's working. Fantastic. Even, the best part is it's working. Yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. I also have another um crowdfunding announcement. All of these links, of course, will be in the show notes so that you can take a look at them. Um, the preview page for my next book, The Business of Freelance Comic Book Publishing, is actually going to, is already up on Kickstarter if you want to follow the campaign. If you are a freelancer or if you work with freelancers as part of your business in comics, this is a book that you probably want to check out. 
Um, the campaign was scheduled to launch July 12th, but again, the link will be in the show notes so that you can check it out and um, hopefully back the project so I can have a successful campaign, just like Andy. The other piece of news that we want to let you know is that Comics Connection has a lot of lessons where we go in depth to a lot of different aspects of running a comic book business and being a professional in comics. And tomorrow, if you are listening to this the day it comes out, tomorrow we are going to be having a live class that's open to the public. The vast majority of our dozens of classes are only available to Comics Connection members. But tomorrow night at 8 p.m., we are going to have a class specifically on how to make a living in comics. What does it mean from a, from a very specific dollar standpoint? How do you go about making a living in comics and how do you avoid getting into comics and then burning out or being homeless or any one of those things that are not very pleasant? So that event is going to be free. If you'd like to get a space, then you can go to the link, get a ticket. If you're actually looking at this video after Wednesday, don't worry, there will be, the video will be available on YouTube on this channel. So those are the three things that I wanted to point out before we started talking about the news. The, the major story that I wanted to talk about this week is actually an opinion and analysis. It comes to us from the folks at Comic Book Resources, and it details the importance from a business and sales, especially a sales standpoint, of the comic book cover. The cliche is that one should not be judging a book by its cover. However, in comics, it is exactly the opposite. So many books are their sales, their popularity, all of it is actually, it starts with the cover. The cover is the the closest thing that comics has to a trailer or a teaser that you can get. So Andy, as a person who has worked with conglomerate characters and licensed characters and new intellectual property, how do you approach getting a cover set up or what do you look for in producing a cover for any particular book? Uh, first of all, I'm totally going to hijack the first conglomerate uh, comics. Very uh, mm -hmm. But um, so it is. It is different. Like working, you know, working on Spider Man. Like people know who Spider Man. Is. People know who Batman. Is. People know those. You know, they know GI Joe is for the most part. And, you know, there's of course a scale of how well any of the characters are. But with any new uh, or any known property then you're really you're really just trying to figure out how can I make that character look different or cooler or more interesting so that I don't just have five identical Spider-Man covers out of every movie. Um, well, I said just, but that's not it. Really, when it comes to... Man, we've sliced this so many different ways, right? So I guess not as much when you're talking about things like in order to get this one cover, you have to buy 50 copies. Mm -hmm. um, it's like those covers, those type of incentive covers and exclusives and those sort of things, they have sort of a different set of parameters that go with them. But when you're talking about like, hey, we got one or two covers going out for that issue of, for this issue of uh, Spawn, right? Um, 
and and the retailers can order as many as they want. What you're really looking for, the bottom line is the company's goal in this case is to sell more And when you start looking at uh, at it differently from that, right? Like you start looking at it like I want it to be really artsy or I want it to be really whatever. But not that there's anything wrong with that, but it still has to serve that basic function of selling the cover, selling the comic, which means catching the eye, telling the reader something, communicating something, even if it's just a feeling that makes them want to pick that comic book up. Um, and generally speaking, you know, we kind of put those into a couple of categories. So the first one is like a character cover, like a single character cover. So you're which can have some of these other elements mixed in, but generally that's something like you know, the article uh, that you referenced in CBR has like the Spider, I mean, Spider-Man 300 cover, where it's just a cool shot of Spider-Man where there's number 300. Um, that's a single character cover. You've got a storytelling cover is number two. Um, and that's, you know, usually sort of depicting an event in the book and how literal and kind of how far from literally the event it is. You know, it, you know, there's wiggle room in there, but that's like, hey, there's a scene where, you know, Storm and Wolverine get into an argument, and so on the cover, you know, Storm is slapping Wolverine's face, saying, "You shut your mouth, you nook," or whatever. I mean, he, America co-opted him. He's back to being American. Yeah. Um, but uh, that's your storytelling cover. And then the, the the third is sort of the thematic cover where it's not telling a story, it's not a, it's sort of a single character, um, you know, and that it, that's more like it both the movie. Um, there's a cover that I loved that we uh, that we did on a, on, a, on a book called The Pulse, which is about order in the Marvel Universe. And it was an all white cover and then Jessica Jones is sort of down in the, in the corner, kind of like almost like she's like cold, like sort of hunched over in like a long shadow. Very simple cover, but like really striking, really stood out on the stands, and we got tons of, of you know compliments and things like that. So those are sort of the three buckets. And of course, there's a, they can be overlap between them, but those are generally speaking three. I guess you could say single character or group if it's X Men or Justice League or whatever you do. Group shot. Um, and that those tend to work really well with um, you know, with those sort of franchises or conglomerate characters. And then you can dig a little deeper into some specifics, like sort of like naturally always help sales um for those types of things, like you know, advertising death of a character, first appearance of a character, uh, a new costume, mm -hmm. um, you know. Um, you know, end of an era type stuff, you know, like those, those sorts of things, you know, tend, tend to move the needle. And I'll give an anecdotal, a little anecdotal evidence of that. Uh, when I was at Marvel in the, in the early mid 2000s, I was editing Spider-Girl, which was a lower selling, selling title. And um, it had been on the chopping block in the rich time. So I was very rabid, very awesome fan base. So it would be these letter writer campaigns and just barely rescued it a couple of times. I was editing it and they were like, no, this time we don't care how many letters you get. Like, it's over. Um, it's going to end with, um, I forget what year it was. It was going to end with issue 75, what it was. And, um, and so I asked the creators, 
I said, I kind of honestly don't care what you put inside the cover, behind the cover, but what we're going to do for the cover of issue 75 is put Spider-Girl in the black symbiote venom costume on a stark white background. So the only thing you see is her in that costume. Uh, and that's it. And then, and then I, I was like, if you want it to be the symbiote in the book, if she just buys a new costume, I don't care. She has to get in that costume, that issue, and we'll see what happens. And sure enough, we wrote up the solicit. Um, I think I think it was Ron Brands did the cover and sailed them through the roof, and we we rescued it again. <laughs> Marvel was like, "Well, let's see how many how much of the sales increase we keep going forward." And we wound up. Uh, I think it made it all the way to the hundred. Eventually, so like it lasted for like two more years. I think um, I was off the book by the time by the time it actually ended, but. Yeah, but like new costume and an iconic one at that on a character that hadn't worn it before, and boop, sales went up, and it was kind of amazing uh, to see it. Like my cynical self was was in full effect that day. So let's see what we can do, and it worked. Um, and really was it was a sales was based pretty much on that cover alone. Now sales stayed up, which meant that the content obviously got some new readers on board. So. But, they, but that's that's sort of that conglomerate cover thing, and then the retailer exclusive stuff, and and that's different. Um, you're looking you're looking for rabid fan bases of the artists. Mm -hmm. um, you're looking for you're, you're looking for some different things there because you're looking to sell essentially the same item for more, more money, but to fewer fewer people, right? And so that changes the parameters. There and then on like new properties, smaller mid-sized publishers doing new IP. Um, you know, you gotta compete with that Spider-Man in the new costume issue or the the death of Robin in the Batman issue that month or whatever, and you've got to find ways to stand out. Um, but ultimately the goal is still to sell the book. But the best way to do that is how do I stand out on a rack against those things like for for example, CEX had corner boxes, which is sort of a throwback for the 70s and 80s. Mm -hmm. Um, but a lot of other publishers have been doing that recently. You know that, that was going to be sort of in the zeitgeist, but I always liked them and thought it was fun, and so we did them. We've been consistent with them. Um, but now I'm wondering, like, does that make us look just like everybody else? And so many other publishers are making the throwback. Mm. Um, you know, and and look, having a corner box is not offer life is not going to make or break your cover but um but you know for for us it's just how can we you know how can we do things and and you know marvel can get away with putting the spider-man logo at the bottom of her but can we i don't know mm -hmm. like we need people to see that logo so if we wrap a certain way that logo needs to be there so that, those are the those are the decisions that you know i think and smaller publishers are are dealing with you want to stand out but you also don't want to make your thing hard to read or hard to find mm. Mm. now i have the the question that i had when i was reading the article was that it seemed like historically because when comic book covers were on newsstands there was it seemed like a lot more information a lot more text was on the cover to get people to get the book so it'll be like you know the the famous X-Men 137 cover had this huge thing about from a promotion from Toys R Us to get a free bicycle that had nothing, literally nothing to do with the 
book itself or the gravi gravitas of the story, but you can get a free bicycle. So they put it up there. Or there would right. be like sound, there would be text boxes and there would be caption boxes. There'd be all sorts of stuff on those covers. And then when you shift it to like the direct market, when you got more collectors and it became more of an art piece, you got the more exclusive cover thing, all of that went away. So now it's just, you know, the art is able to stand on, on its own. But nowadays, if people are, if a lot of people are looking to get, looking for books online, the cover is just a thumbnail. So how does the, from a publisher standpoint, cover does, how do you factor in the design of the cover based on the distribution channel that that book might be going into? That's a... That's a great point. And, and that that shift from the sort of the verbose covers, we'll call them, mm -hmm. um, to non-verbose covers, it didn't, you know, it wasn't like a switch, right? It wasn't mm -hmm. in that overnight. And part of that, I think it was through stylistically things changed. Like in the early 2000s, you know, decompressed storytelling was, was really good. And you know, when they all shifted that way, now that, that pendulum started swinging back. And you're starting to see some more uh, comics with you know, kind of border on them. Um, but, you, you know, your thumbnail point, like, hey, I gotta go sign online for this see their small image of it. I think that probably is part of the reason why things have been changing. Another part of the reason is um, solicitation cycles changed in the, in the early 2000s, late, late 90s, maybe. Um, and, and we were doing more and more variants in the industry. We were doing more covers in the industry really in 98, um, And I, it was, it, that's, a, that's a fair amount to add to the editorial workload to track mm -hmm. a whole other item with, with essentially a different group of creators and people doing it, you know, and do that multiple times on multiple comics every month became difficult. And it also became difficult to make those feel distinct. And so, you know, when I was working on books that often had multiple covers, it was like, well, I'll do one cover that's this, I'll do another cover that's this other thing. So like when I was doing G.I. Joe and a month, there's usually something that was thematic or storytelling, and there's something more of iconic character looking that didn't really tell you anything, but it looked cool. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and so as opposed to doing trying to have two different storytelling covers. Yeah, and then you get into and then you get into things like, well, what if we did do two storytelling covers but they're connected, and that way you're trying to force people to buy both, um, or convince them to buy both, you know, um, and those sorts of things can be really fun. I think they're fun. Like, I don't mind doing those every once in a while, and as a consumer, I don't mind it every once in a while either. Mm -hmm. um, it's when you try to do it every single month on every single book. Then it, it, it stops being fun and, and you know, kind of to break it. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that answers your question. But no, no, I think it thumbnail, does. The fact that the thumbnails are small is, is a factor. Like, I tend to generally advise my creators to knock out the background noise, mm -hmm. make sure you've got a focus point, make sure you've got room for your logo. That's a huge mistake that artists make. Um, I, I'll get a lot of artwork and they're like, well, I just figured you can put the logo in the lower right-hand corner. I'm like, the last place anyone will look for it <laughs> or the issue number or the price or the whatever. Like, no, we're not doing that. Like, 
gave you a template. It says, don't block this. You know, and I don't mind. Actually, I'm a, I'm a fan of elements that will pop over a logo as long as it doesn't make it pop. I think that adds some dynamics to a, to a cover. But other other publishers are like, absolutely not. Don't touch the logo. Um, well, I do remember that just just historically speaking, there are some major major covers that I remember where literally the part of the draw of the cover was that the title treatment was destroyed by the cover. So if you think about that, the first appearance of like Beta Ray Bill, and he's like smashing oh, yeah, like the down, he smashes the four yeah. words or things like that. But what the question that I wanted to ask was in terms of like the, I don't want to, I guess I don't want to call them gimmick covers. They're like um, foil covers, 3D covers, uh, hologram covers. Enhanced covers. Oh, enhanced covers. Okay, not gimmick yes. covers. Got it. No, okay. Not gimmicks. We're not tricking people. <laughs> so giving us poetry with that name. Yeah, those, yeah, those different cover treatments for sure, like the materials and the, yeah, sorry. What's the question? The question is, how much do those impact the actual sales and the actual cost to make a book as a publisher? Um, well, they are more expensive to make, um, which is which is the part of the reason to <laughs> to charge more for them. Is they are they are substantially more expensive, um, and different types of covers and different types of treatments have different costs associated. But generally, you're looking at, at a significant cost hike on the production. Um, uh, in terms of how they affect sales, um, I'm going to sort of, <laughs> I, was, I was listening to an interview with uh, Megan Rapino last night um, mm -hmm. that was really interesting. And she was talking about how, uh, if you don't know who Megan Rapino is, uh, comic book fans, she's, uh, she's a member of the U.S. Um, uh, women's soccer team uh, is very, very famous and popular. But she's one of the reasons why she's regarded the way she is is that she had a platform and she fought for like really good causes and equal pay for women in sports, for equal access to, you know, facilities and all this sort of stuff, uh, along with the rest of the team that she was kind of the face of it. Um, and what she said that I thought was just like spot on, and she said this going back years, was she only has that platform because they're women. Right? Mm -hmm. As long as they're winning and they're popular, then people want to know what they have to offer beyond just scoring goals. 